Good morning. My name is Grant Bauman. I've been coming to Gateway for quite some time, almost 30 years. Uh, my wife Amanda and I have four children, and uh, we're happy to be uh, life group hosts in this church. Uh, today, uh, we are going to read from Revelations 12, uh, 1 to 10. A great sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. A crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and carrying... Sorry. She cried out in pain as she was pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on her head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman she was about to give birth so it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. The child was snatched up to God, to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and all of his angels fought against the dragon. The dragons fought back, but they were not strong enough. And then they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, him and his angels with him. Then the Lord, I heard a loud voice in the heavens. Now came, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of my brothers and sisters who have accused them before our God day and night have been hurled down. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your Bibles, please, if you haven't already, and find that chapter, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, you can find it in your Bible or your app or your phone, wherever you find that. I want to encourage you to please have that in front of you as we walk through our text today. And while you're doing that, I just want to say a quick hello and welcome to our sister church in Houston who is joining with us. Uh, we're about a thousand kilometers away from each other. And yet we share the same spirit and the same Lord, so bless you. Uh, thanks for joining with us today. So two weeks ago, you might recall that we looked at the four horses. We saw the white horse, which is the counterfeit gospel. We saw the black horse, which was poverty. We saw the pale horse, which was sickness unto death. And then we also saw the red horse, which was our lust for war, our lust for war. And I shared with you two weeks ago that the red horse is trampling all over us. And I think 14 days later, it is even more visible 
than it was then. Since then, we are now watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we are praying for God's miraculous intervention. I think it is very fitting for us Christians to pray, to seek the Lord's face, that God would bring about peace to our land. We see that the Red Rider is raging, and it should bring us to our knees, and our hearts should break. But I also propose to you that the Red Rider is raging here in Canada, too. For those of you who are uh, reading along with us in the book Reversed Thunder, you will have noticed that when he talks about war, he talks about how it often rears its ugly face by one of two means, by the manipulation of force, and that's what we see in Ukraine, or by the manipulation of words. And I want to propose to you that that is what we're seeing a lot of here in Canada. So, albeit much more subtle, the Red Rider rages on and on and on. And so here's what I want to do for all of us this morning as we dive into Revelation chapter 12. I've gotten in the habit of showing you the plain main thing so that we don't have to guess. We don't have to say, okay, what's all this about? I'm just going to give it to you right on the front end and then we're going to unpack it together. So what is Revelation 12 all about in all times and in all places? Here's the plain main thing. There is a battle that is waging right now. It's just not the one most of us are all riled up about. There is a battle that is waging right now, as we speak, in this moment. It's just not the one all of us or most of us are all riled up about. And I've shared with you before that what was true then must be true today. We're not learning anything new. And this book cannot mean for us today what it did not mean for them then. And so even for the people of Israel in the first century, under Emperor Nero and then under Emperor Domitian, they understood this principle too. There's a battle that's waging right now. It's just not the one most people are riled up about. And the same thing can be true of us today. And that is why I shared with you that the Red Rider is killing us right now. In Canada, in Russia, in Ukraine and in our hearts, and in our hearts. We have the white rider who's telling you, here's the real problem in the world. He's got the carrot on the stick, right? He's saying, this is the issue that you got to be looking at. This is what you got to be all anxious about. And then the red rider tells you, here's the problem with the world. Other people, people on the other side. And you should use manipulation of words, manipulation of force. You should fight. And really, all of it is the shadow. All of it is the shadow. And I think that is why the book of Revelation is so helpful, because it re rightly reveals to us what is happening in the unseen realm. It helps identify to us what ultimate reality is, and that everything else is the shadow. And by the way, it's not like I planned on reading Revelation chapter 12 today. This sermon series has been planned for the last six months. The text, the title even, you know what our title is for this morning? The last word on politics. My goodness, like we, I, I didn't plan any of this. In the very same week that we see Russia invading Ukraine, that we see China contemplating invading Taiwan, where we see kind of the pinnacle of the convoy protests, where we see the, the war act being used for the first time since I believe 1970 here in Canada, all happening this week. And here we are in this chapter by God's grace.
And I gotta be, I gotta be super clear right on the front end here. Okay, because I know that uh, some of us might be like, oh my goodness, a sermon on politics. Isn't that dangerous? Yeah, cool. Sure is. Oh, so fun. So here's, here's what I want us to know. I have no intentions on trivializing the issues of our day, especially the war in Ukraine. Because here's what we know. Whenever we see manipulation of words or manipulation of force or just overt war, whenever we see this, it is a reminder that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to get on our knees and to pray to the Lord who can make war cease to the ends of the earth. And because of that, we should be on our knees. But also, Revelation chapter 12 helps us see rightly that both the manipulation of force, like we see in Russia, and the manipulation of words, like we see in Canada, are symptoms of something much deeper. And what is that? The sin and the depravity that lingers in our hearts. And the war that is waging in the unseen realm. That is the great battle of our day. Everything else is the symptoms. So let me share uh, James chapter 4 with you again. We looked at this two weeks ago. I think it's fitting to look one more time. What causes wars? What causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. So, here's what we see. This is always bubbling up in our heart, always bubbling up in our soul, and sometimes it reaches a breaking point and we go out to overt war. But as Peterson has shared with us already, even when war subsides and and peace treaties are signed and people go about their, their days and just kind of living out in peace. It's not actually peace. It's just war in the shadows that is building up for the next outbreak. Julie and I, just last night, we contemplated watching a documentary that was made in 2015 about, guess what? The war in Ukraine. And here we are again. Things rise and fall, but the Red Rider's always raging. The Red Rider is always waging. We think we're civilized people ever since World War II. Here's what we've had. Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Rwanda, many, many others, other iterations of exactly this. The forces behind mass violence are never over. They're always on the move, always moving, always working, especially in our own hearts. Especially in our own hearts. This is the human condition This is ultimate reality, and everything else is the shadow. And so this morning, we're going to see the curtain open up to the third window since we have started the series. And for the sake of our guests, let me recap where we've gone really quickly. The first window is the window of the throne room of God. And what did we see there? We saw that God reigns supreme on his throne, that he has ultimate authority, that he has ultimate power, that he is the hope of the world, and that everything else worships under his feet. And if we can see that on the front end, that he is sovereign and ultimately in control, then we don't need to be afraid of what's going to happen. 
Because we know that he's in control, that he is sovereign over all things. And then what did we see as the second window? The window of the unveiling of the scroll. What was the plain main thing? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't unlock the scroll, no matter how hard we try. And here's what that means. We don't have to wonder to ourselves, okay, what's the problem with the world? Oh, it must be other people. It might be people on the left. They're the problem. No, it's people on the right. No, it's people in political power. No, it's people who are in military power, seeking conquest. You know what the problem with the world is? The depravity of your heart. The depravity of your own heart. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us when a depraved world acts depraved. Like, we know it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, look, look right here. To the degree that you understand this, you are a Christian who knows the gospel. To the degree that you understand this, you are a Christian who knows the gospel. Let me, let me put some teeth on this for a second. I am convinced that some of us here are convinced that if there were 7 billion carbon copies of you, the world would be a better place. It would be a utopian place. It would be a perfect place. But let me tell you, if there were 7 billion carbon copies of Justin, what a scary idea, 7 billion carbon copies of Justin, do you know what the world would be like? It would be a depraved, broken, warmongering place. It would not be a utopian place. Same goes for you. And, and for some reason, we, we still have this idea in our mind that the problem with the world is them, or them, or someone out there. But guess what? Here's the problem. Your heart. The sin that rages in your own heart. And I'm, I'm convinced this is the reason why, for many of us, the gospel doesn't compel us. It doesn't fill us with incredible joy. It doesn't bring us to our knees because we still have this idea that, you know what, I'm a little bit sinful, but I'm kind of like maybe not quite Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly not like other people like Vladimir Putin. Does that make you uncomfortable? Certainly, I'm, I'm not like really, really bad people. But guess what? At least according to what Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't unlock the scroll. Now, let me give a super important caveat to this. Does that mean that people in political power, like the names that you might be thinking of in your own mind right now, that they're just off the hook? No, of course not. The same message applies to them. If they were sitting on the front row, they'd have to hear exactly the same thing. But what it does mean is that we are not going to try and convince ourselves that the problem with the world is someone over there when we know that the real problem with the world is that I have sin in my own heart. I don't have to be looking at the binoculars saying, what's the real problem? Because I can see things rightly. Revelation chapter 12 tells me, Grant just read it for us, that we see that the problem with the world is the depravity of our own hearts. And here's what it will do if we can see this. We will realize that people that you disagree with are not the enemy. They might be deceived by the enemy, they might be willfully blind and being used by the enemy. They might be mistaken, but they're not your enemy. That we know that the great enemy that we are dealing with right now is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the principalities and powers of Satan and his minions during this dark age. That is the problem with this world. 
And it's not until we can be convinced of this that we can move forward in confidence and actually address the real issues that are, being, uh, that are happening in our life. So let, let me uh, just try and flesh this out a little bit further because this is how we're actually going to end this morning talking about how do we counterpunch the enemy. This kind of helps flesh this out. If you have concerns with regard to people who, whom you disagree with, I think there's two appropriate responses to unbelievers and to believers. And you've got to choose one. Here it is. To an unbeliever, this is what your motivation is. To win people, not arguments. The goal is persuasion, not warfare. Last I checked, in the economy of God's kingdom, our objective is to win people, not to defeat them. To win people, not to defeat them. So as we enter into society, or into politics, or into culture, into civil debate, we do so with this ultimate reality in mind. So let me just try this on for size. Um, people have opinions on masks. Are you aware? <laughs> What's he going to say next? Oh my goodness. People have opinions on vaccines. People have opinions on the convoy protests in Ottawa. You aware of these things? And, and here's what I want to share with you on the front end. Regardless of where you land on this, you're entitled to your opinions. You're entitled to practicing your charter of rights and freedoms as a Canadian citizen or as an immigrant here. You're entitled to those things. But here's the pushback. Here's the encouragement that I want to give you. Those things better not be ultimate in your life because we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God and that's what informs how we interact as citizens of Canada and any other nation. The focus of our lives should be wrapped up in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. What's the motivation of your life if you are someone who follows Jesus? What's the goal? To make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that God has commanded you. That is the sole focus. So it's okay to have your opinions. It's okay to have convictions. It's okay to have thoughts that, you know what, as I read scripture, I think what God is telling me is I need to properly engage in society or in civil discourse or in politics or whatever else have you because the Bible compels me to do so. But you better be motivated by the Great Commission and not just by your own personal opinions. And if you know that in your heart of hearts, then I say God bless you in that. I just want to make sure that your sole focus is on what God says and not just on what you think. And not just what we want. That is so critically important. So uh, let, me, let me give a comparison to this. From what I see in Canada and, and what I see in the Ukraine, you see that the posture of pastors and missionaries in Ukraine right now, many of them had the financial means to leave. Many of them had the time to leave because we've all been watching it on the news. Russia did this slowly, progressively over time, surrounding this nation. They all saw it coming. They could have went back to their native homeland, but many of them stayed. Why did they stay? Why would they do that? Like, in the eyes of the world, it's lunacy and I want to give you an example of this. Here's a man, his name is Vassal Ostrel. He has four daughters, and he chose to stay, and here's what he said. 
if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it's not relevant at a time of peace. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians responded in their time of need. We will shelter the weak, we will serve the suffering, we will mend the broken, and as we do so, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. Now let me ask you, for, for this gentleman named Vassal, he probably has uh, unchristian family members overseas trying to compel them to come back home. Come back, come back, come back. Get out of that place. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Come back. He says, no, we're staying. I'm going to put my own family at risk. My four girls, my wife, myself, we're going to stay. What would compel you to do that? Let me tell you, ultimate reality compels him to do this. What compels him to do this, to to lay aside his own personal rights and freedoms, his own opinions, is a vision of what we see in Revelation chapter 12. I might decrease so that Christ might increase, so that others might see that Jesus is the Lord of their life, and they might come in, they might gather in, even in this dark hour. You can can hear him saying, you know what, things are going to get worse before they get better, but I'm not afraid of that. Do you know why? Because last I checked... The light shines brighter in dark places. The light shines brighter in dark places. And I think this is the mirror that we need in our nation right now. As we are so fixated on pontificating about our own personal opinions, but really the motivation for a Christian is to say, when the Bible says jump, I say how high. And I want to make sure that God's kingdom is proclaimed even in the midst of dark places. This is a man who's so gripped by the truth revealed in the book of Revelation that it has caused him to do something that is stupid in the eyes of the world so that others might be one to Jesus Christ. So, with respect to unbelievers, your objective is to win people, not arguments. The the focus is persuasion, not warfare. Okay, what about Christians? How do we respond to Bible-believing Christians? Well, to believers, I put it this way. Your objective is to lovingly admonish them, not to vilify them. The goal here is repentance, not warfare. Repentance, not warfare. So you would do exactly the same thing that you might do in a healthy marriage. By a show of hands, how many of you here are married? Lots of married folks. Now, let me ask you a question. When you have a disagreement with your spouse, do you um, publicly humiliate them on the internet? No? Oh, that's interesting. Do you uh, slander them to your friends? Do you gossip about them with others? No, probably not. How, How do you deal with it when you have a disagreement with your spouse? Do you not close the door in your room? Do you not have a loving conversation with them? Do you not, in a sense, become less than them as you seek to motivate them to to see the error of their ways, not in a condescending way, but because you love them and you cherish them and and you want to see them flourish and grow? You You want them to get right back on the path of righteousness? Is that not the reason why you do what you do? You're motivated out of love and not out of hate? In the same way, if you have a disagreement with a believer... 
maybe even a vehement disagreement, and you think that the decisions that they're making are terrible decisions. Your only objective in that moment is to come underneath them, to become less than them, to build them up so that they can see that you are motivated to love them. So, as Christians, those are the only two methods that we can use. You can treat them like unbelievers, but your objective better be to win them. Or you can treat them like believers, but your motivation better be reconciliation and repentance. But it's never warfare. It's never warfare. Because warfare is the red rider. That is the sign of the world that is broken. And as Christians, we want to redeem these elements so that the red rider is struck down. And so I want you to see this. The real- this reality, what we just talked about, is what leads us to this third window, which is the window of the cosmic reality, the window of politics, the window of the war in the unseen realm. And this week, Grant shared it with us already, we saw a woman, and she is dressed with the rays of the sun, and she has 12 stars on the crown on her head, and she's standing on the moon, and she is glorious and beautiful, and in a literal sense, it's away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. But also what we see here is lightning flashes, thunder, hail, earthquakes. Which one is it? It's both. It's both. A woman appears in the sky. She's beautiful. She's amazing. And then we have this this incredible vision where John sees the 24 elders and they're singing praises to God around the throne room of God, but all of that chorus is drowned out by the screams of a woman in childbirth. She's screaming. And then we see the dragon appears. And notice the conflict of the story. The dragon is as ugly as the woman is beautiful. The dragon is as violent, and he violates the moonlit sky as the woman is decorated by the sun and the stars and the moon. The dragon is bent on bringing about death, and the woman is intent on preserving life. And he lunges to devour the child, and in the last moment, as we look away, there is rescue. Rescue from God. So, which one is it? Is it a way in a manger, no crib for a bed? Or is it the dragon is coming to rip off his head. I just ruined that story for you. You're never going to think of it the same. Which one is it? It's both at exactly the same time. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, The immediate consequence of the birth of Jesus is not Christmas carols, but a great war spread across all the heavens. This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it's the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It is excites evil. It excites evil. And so what we're seeing in this chapter is not just Christmas, but the great war between God and Satan across all times and all spaces, and that is still happening right now. This is the real war. This is the ultimate war. Everything else is the shadow. Everything else is the shadow. And so you, you might believe that you know how to fix our country right now, or how to fix the issue in Russia and Ukraine, or how to fix the problems in our world overall. But 
I want to propose to you, you don't have to guess because Revelation chapter 12 has already shared it with you and is inviting you into this battle. So let's look at this again for a moment. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9. If you have your Bible, 12, verse 7 to 9. The war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to the earth, and his angels with him. So, here's the incredible news. I put it this way in your note sheet. The enemy has been defeated. Victory is won. The enemy has been defeated. Victory is one. Now this is good news. This is good news to know that we have already won the great war. In fact, six times we hear that the enemy has been thrown down. It is remarkably redundant. It is joyously redundant. It is beautifully redundant. But wait, there's more. This story isn't just about Mary and Jesus. It's about us too. Here's how we know this. Numerous times in the Old Testament, whenever we hear about the sun, the moon, and the stars, it is always a reference to the people of Israel. One example of this is in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. This is when Joseph, the king of dreams, he has a dream about his father, who is the sun, his mother, who is the moon, his brothers, who are the stars. We see numerous iterations of this. So when the people of Israel, Jewish Christians in the first century hear this, they know it doesn't just mean Mary in a literal sense. It also means the people of Israel. It also means the church. It's all those things at exactly the same time. And then we also see the dragon in verse 9. Did you notice what color he is? Red, which is the color of war every single time. We see it in the book of Revelation. It's an indication of war. He is like the red rider. He is the killer. And so we've got to stop here just for a second. I want us to see that verse 9 is the great message of hope that we get on the front end, not on the back end. We know how the story ends. We can have hope. And here's why this is so important. Because what John is about to reveal to us is things are going to progressively get worse before they get better. And if you don't know how the story ends, you are going to be filled with angst. You are going to be filled with dread. You're going to start posturing and, and getting angry and having uh, anger and lust for war in your heart. But if you can see plainly with your own two eyes, if you have the vision to see in a cosmic reality that God is on his throne, that he reigns supreme, that the scroll has been opened through Jesus Christ, and that the great enemy has been thrown down, you know all that on the front end? then I want to propose to you that you're going to be as cool as a cucumber when things get rough, when things get dark. You'll be brought to your knees, yes. Tears will fill your eyes, yes. You'll be called to pray, yes. But you will not be terrified. You will not be filled with angst. Because you know how the story ends. And it also means that you will not treat other people as the enemy 
but you will treat Satan and his minions as the enemy who has already been thrown down. We will have the eyes to see this. And so here's what we see in verse 17. If your Bible is still open, this is the part where it gets worse. Verse 17 says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. Remember, this is representing who? Mary? Yes. Israel? Yes. The church? Yes. And went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So, if you want to know why the world is filled with evil, if you want to know why things are so difficult, if you want to know why racism endures, if you want to know why we are constantly waging war with one another, here it is. The answer has been given to you. The word of God is trying to wake you up, in a sense, for your eyes to be opened to what the real battle ultimately is. And that everything else that you see is the shadow. And so just track with me for a second. I want to show you that when non-Christians deal with warlike times, they're always going to invariably pick one of two methods. I put it this way in your note sheet. They will either fight or flight. They will fight or flight. They will take up their traditional political means through the manipulation of words or the manipulation of force. They will go to literal war. They will try to get what they want. Or they will choose flight and they will try to preserve themselves. They'll try to protect themselves and what belongs to them. But I want to propose to you that Christians always invariably choose a third way. They do not fight. They do not flight. They enter into the pain. They enter into the suffering. Just like Vassal did. A way that is foolish in the eyes of the world. A way that chooses to stay in the midst of the war, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering. They stay there because their objective is to shine the light of Christ in the midst of a dark place. Because they know that's the ultimate goal. That is the real war that is taking place in the midst of our lives. And so let me share with you where we're at today, right now. Here's the place where we are at on February 27th at 11 a.m., 2022 we are in a war with a defeated and desperate enemy who seeks to destroy us a defeated and desperate enemy who seeks to destroy us that's why the apostle paul says what he says in second corinthians chapter 2 he, he says this that we should not be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. So here's his scheme. If you want to take note of this, please feel free to do so. We have one enemy. His name is Satan. One enemy. His name is Satan. He has one objective, to destroy the offspring of the people of God. And he does this through one method, to distract us by any means possible to distract us by any means possible. And so I, I want to say it to you again. There is a great battle that is waging right now. It's just not the one most of us are all riled up about. I love the way that Timothy Keller puts this. He says, 
what we believe about the future is one of the best predictions for how we're going to act today. I love that. See, this is the hope that helps you work and worship and live in the midst of life. When you go to work, when you engage in politics, when you go to your friend's house, when you leisure and rest at home, wherever you are, this is the ultimate reality. So look right here for a second. Look. I think if we firmly understood the hope-filled reality that God wins, that we wouldn't be filled with angst. If we understood this hope-filled reality that God is sovereign on his throne, we wouldn't be filled with angst. Instead, we would lean into these warlike times knowing that God's victory is inevitable and he is in control. And so, for the rest of our time, I just, I want to look at these schemes of the evil one. Three schemes we're going to quickly walk through. Because here's what I want us to do. I want us to be able to identify them. I want us to be able to defend ourselves against them. And perhaps what is my most favorite part of this, then we get to counterpunch the enemy. We get to make noise in a really good way. We get to engage in the fight in a really appropriate way. So here are the schemes. Number one, the first scheme of the evil one is accusation. Accusation. Look again at chapter 12, verse 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is the first scheme of the evil one as he seeks to destroy you, the people of God. He accuses you. This is the full frontal attack of the enemy. He exists to accuse you and to convince you of his accusation. That's what he does day and night, up and down, every waking moment of every single day, he wants to accuse you. Now he's going to use different means for all of us in this room. It's not going to look the same, but almost always it is tied to the pain of your past. Maybe something that um, your parents or parent once said to you, or a friend or a teacher or someone who harmed you, and then he'll just, he'll lean into that. He'll say things like, you're not man enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not wise enough. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a fraud. And then, and then even when you begin to follow Jesus, he just leans into the accusations even more. He says, you're a Christian, are you? Oh, you follow Jesus. Oh, you kiss your spouse. But you and I both know what you've been up to. You and I both know what you've been watching on the internet. You and I both know what you've been doing. You are a hypocrite. You are a phony. You are a fake. Why even do those things? He tries to create doubt in your mind, to create suspicion in your mind, to accuse you, to accuse you, to accuse you, until you are motivated to accuse yourself. And then he takes you out of the fight entirely. Because you are so overcome with guilt and with shame. This is the primary work of the enemy. And I think it's one of the reasons why even you yourself, you might be motivated to stop attending worship. Or stop reading your Bible. Or not to share your faith 
with those who do not yet know the name of Jesus or even to serve in leadership. All of them are tied to this accusation. I'm not wise enough. I'm not smart enough. What if they ask me something I don't understand? What if they discover that I'm a hypocrite? All of them. Lies. Lies of the evil one. And if you believe the accusations, you will run from God rather than abide in his presence. If you believe the accusations, you will not be solely focused on the will of God laid out in this book. And if you believe the accusations, then you will refrain from sharing your faith with your lost neighbors. All of these are lies of Satan. But here's the good news. No one gets to define you except King Jesus. No one gets to define you except King Jesus. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not someone who possibly harmed you in the past, and certainly not Satan as he seeks to accuse you. Only Jesus gets to define you. And here's what Jesus says about you. God tells you that though you have been the prodigal, you are his beloved child. That's Galatians chapter 3 and Luke 15. He tells you that there is no condemnation for you since you are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8. He says that he has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 103. That he has raised you up in Christ. That's Colossians chapter 3. That he has a purpose and a plan for your life, for you to prosper, a hope-filled future. And he knits you together in your mother's womb before the dawn of time. These are the promises of God that he has laid out before you. That you are the apple of his eye. That he delights in you. That he loves you. Everything else is the accusation. And the only way that we can defeat the enemy in this is if we stand to the promises of God in the midst of the accusations of the evil one. The only way we can do this is if we behold the Lamb of God who opened the scroll for you and for me. That's the only way it's going to melt our heart and cause us to throw off the accusations of the evil one and to lean into the promises of God if we can see clearly what Jesus says about us. Number two, he seeks to use the scheme of deceit and distraction. Verse 9 tells us that he is the great deceiver. Jesus calls him the father of lies. Genesis chapter 3, the very first indication of us seeing Satan, the serpent, in the garden. What does he do? He says, did God really say? What's the accusation? God's trying to keep you down. God doesn't have your best intentions in mind. God doesn't care about you. He has a secret scheme, a secret plan. These are the deceptions of the evil one. He does, that, he does that primarily by two means. The first is by trying to convince you not to treat the word of God as the ultimate authority in your life. To have a take it or leave it attitude toward this book. And the second way that he does this is through distraction. I thought this was really interesting. This came from a persecuted Christian in Iran, when asked about the church in the West, he said this, it's like the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. It's almost like what's happened over a period of time without much suffering and with a great accumulation of wealth, the enemy has just gone, shh, it's okay. Where's your soother? Netflix, there it is. Shh. Where's
That's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to distract you for you not to see ultimate reality as laid out in this book. And the third and final scheme that he uses is death. The dragon intimidates us with death because death is the ultimate enemy. But here's the great news for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has disarmed the enemy by making death our gain. He makes death our gain. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us we now have the, the permission to taunt death. Like if you have this vision in your mind that God is sovereign on his throne, that the seal has been opened and that the enemy has been thrown down and that even death itself cannot defeat you, then you can look at the evil one and you're going to say, what can you do to me? What can you do to me? You're going to kill me, put me to death to die as gain. You're going to keep me alive? Well, I'm just going to go around and try to build up God's kingdom everywhere. You're going to throw me on a deserted island in Patmos? I'm going to write some scripture. What can you do to me? Nothing. You can't do anything to me. And so all the schemes that the evil one tries to put upon us, we actually get to not only defend ourselves against them, but to deflect them and to use them against the enemy. Because once again, even in the midst of dark places, the light shines brightest. That is the great hope that we have. And I want to just propose to you, Christians are built for this. While the rest of the world is filled with anger and angst and resentment and bitterness and frustration, not being able to open the scroll, there's Christians, cool as a cucumber. Why? Because we know how the story ends. And because even death, we no longer fear. Because we know that death is just a gateway into life. Life with Jesus. And so we can even join together with Vassal and say, you know what? We will make foolish decisions in the eyes of the world because we are about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. And so here's how you counterpunch the enemy, and then we'll close. Here is what I believe to be the great crescendo moment of Revelation chapter 12. If you believe everything that I just shared with you, here's going to be the natural outpouring of this on your life. How do we counterpunch the work of the evil one? By the word of our testimony. By the word of our testimony. That's how verse 17 ends. This great reality that death has been defeated, that Satan has no power over us, that we can have hope in the midst of dark places, we now move forward in faith by the word of our testimony. And I just want to propose to you, if you want to be zealous for something, be, be zealous about this. You know, Easter is, is just five weeks away. Can you believe it? We're almost at Easter. I want to challenge you. For the next five weeks, consider praying earnestly for someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus. And then consider inviting them to our Easter service. I'm going to preach a remarkably simple gospel message. We're going to worship with our choir and our orchestra. We're going to sing praises to God. And so if there's someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus, invite them to come. Invite them to come. 
Like, this is the great motivation of our lives more than anything else, more than defending our opinions, our personal rights, our freedoms, as important as those things may be. The most important thing is sharing the gospel, the word of our testimony, that God reigns, that he is in control, that even in the midst of your suffering, your hopelessness, there's hope for you here. And so that's, that's my challenge to you. That's what I want to lay out before you for the next month. Consider writing, even right now as you're taking your notes, write down the name of that person that, that's on your heart. Pray for them. Invite them to worship on Easter morning. And remember the words of Vassal, who is still there today with his four girls and with his wife. That last he checked, the light shines brightest in dark places. Victory is ours. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have victory over death, that you rule and reign that you have hurled down the evil one. And now he's simply desperately, desperately as a defeated enemy seeking to drag us down with him. Lord, help us not to get caught up in his schemes, but to defend ourselves against the evil one and even to use his own means and his own methods against him so that we might Share the good news of the gospel in the midst of these dark places. And even if, Lord, things get worse before they get better, we stand on your promises. For you are in control. And that gives us incredible life-giving hope. Go before us by the power of your Holy Spirit inspire us to share the good news of the gospel with others who don't yet know it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.